Mark 5, beginning at verse 21. This concerns a small girl and a very sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He, returned, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. Lord Jesus Christ, we too would reach out with faith at our fingertips to touch the hem of your cloak. Lord, as we come to your living word this morning, would you reach into our hearts and strengthen our faith in you? 
for we ask it in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Surviving the heat. Uh, interestingly enough, I can remember very hot days when I was a child. And I remember them especially because it was very cool in the very early mornings. You see, my dad was a greengrocer. We lived in South London, and he had to travel up to Covent Garden Market, as it was in those days, two or three times a week, very early in the morning, uh, to buy fruit and vegetables. And a great treat as a young boy was when I was allowed to accompany him. It was marvellous. We'd park the van in one of the side roads, and then we'd go around the market and we'd place the orders. And then my great treat came, because I was taken into a greasy spoon calf full of all these wonderful porters, Covent Garden porters with leather jackets. They were just amazing characters. And they all seemed to know my dad. Now, I have to say, I didn't come from a church background. My dad certainly was not a religious man at all. But he used to rather like telling the story about a rather dodgy Covent Garden porter who'd had an accident at work. And the accident apparently had confided him to a wheelchair. So he sued his employers for a very large sum of money. And he was awarded this large sum of money and sitting there in his wheelchair. And at the end of the, uh, of the court hearing, the judge said to him, well, now tell me, he said, uh, how are you going to spend this money? And the porter in the wheelchair said, well, it's easy, Gov. He said, I'm going to go and travel around the world. And the judge looked at him, sitting in his wheelchair. This was the 50s. He said, well, that's going to be a bit strange, isn't it? He said, travel around the world. Oh, yes, Gav. He said, yeah, I'm going to travel around the world. He said, but first place I'm going to is Lourdes for a miracle cure. <laughs> well, the miracles that Jesus performed are less suspect. They're spectacular stories, most of them. He heals the heals the sick, he calms the storm, he raises the dead. They are miraculous signs designed to show that he was indeed the Messiah. But they're signs do for us. They remind us that the way things are isn't actually the way they will always be. Jesus, for us, is living proof that God's will isn't for chaos, but wholeness. And each of his miracles proclaims that truth for us. It's as if, as if every healing, every banishment of evil, every revival of faith is evidence of how God's kingdom can break through into the here and now. But then the miracles come to an end, the disciples go back to their fishing, the blind beggar walks away to look for work, and a widow, healed of hemorrhaging for 12 years, returns to her household duties. And a 12-year-old girl yawns, stretches out her hand, and takes the bread that her amazed mother has ready for her. Gospel miracles remind us that there is power that is still available for us today through our kinship with Christ. But it's hard to read about these miracles without wanting one of our own because we all know somebody who is suffering, somebody who could really use a miracle. Yet miracles seem quite hard to come by because not everybody who prays for one gets one. And I have to confess, when I hear about a present-day miracle, I'm tempted to try and work out what they did right 
so I can know what to do. What's the best formula? Is it two parts prayer to three parts faith and one parts good work? Only most of the time it's hard to do because God rarely does anything the same way twice. Take these two stories in Mark, the woman who bled for 12 years and his daughter, also 12, who was on the threshold of womanhood. From the Jewish point of view, there was nothing more humiliating than a woman with an issue of blood. The Talmud gives no fewer than 11 different cures. Some were herbal tonics, others were pure superstition. Like carrying around the ashes of an ostrich's egg in a linen bag in summer and a cotton bag in winter. Imagine if you went to your GP and that's what he prescribed. But Mark says that she tried all these remedies, and in the eyes of the law, she was still unclean. Anyone or anything she touched was defiled. Yet despite all this, despite her low status, despite her fear, despite her fear of mixing in public, despite all her fears, she conquered her fears, and she put them on one side, and she reached out to Jesus with faith at her fingertips. Jesus didn't have to, at that point, Jesus didn't have to tell her not to be afraid. She totally believed in him. And then Jairus' daughter. Well, by the time Jesus gets to the house, the morning rituals are well underway. The rending of garments and the wailing, all strictly complying with Jewish law. I mean, take the rending of garments. You didn't just tear your clothes anywhere you fancied. You actually, there were actually 39 different regulations about how you should rend your garments. You had to be standing up. We were talking about it a bit earlier. The rent had to be over the heart. You had to be able to put your fist into the rent. For ladies, for modesty's sake, you could rent the back of your garments and turn it round. Then for seven days you had to sew it out very loosely, and then for 30 days after that you still had to wear it loosely stitched. So there were a lot of regulations. Then there was wailing for the dead. In a house of grief, well, this was a house of grief, that had to be incessant. So professional wailing women were employed. They've still got them in the Middle East today. And the idea was this, that when new sympathizers arrived at the house, these ladies would start wailing afresh, making it easier for the newcomers to shed tears and join in the lament. No wonder they mocked Jesus when he issued his divine diagnosis and said she was only asleep. Mark wants to make it abundantly clear to us that the bleeding woman and the dead little girl were taboos in Judaism. By having anything to do with either of them, Jesus rendered himself unclean. Now that wasn't a sin in itself. People could still have babies, they could still care for the sick, they could still bury the dead. Only, you see, Jesus wasn't a midwife or a nurse. He was a holy man. He was expected to steer well clear of defilement. If it happened by mistake, as it did the moment the bleeding woman touched his garment, according to the law, he should have gone off to purify himself. Until he did, he was contagious. He was unfit for holy duty. 
But you see, Jesus didn't go off and purify himself. He simply sent the healed woman away, and then he turned round to follow Jairus. What a scandal. It's quite interesting, actually. When the woman reached out to touch the fringe of his cloak, I'm not sure cloak is the best translation in the NIV, what she would actually have come into contact with was the four blue tassels that were worn by a Jew at the corner of his cloaks. And those tassels had huge significance. They comprised four threads, one longer than the other, which was twisted around seven times, then knotted eight times, then 11 times, then 13 times. So just to see if you're awake, let's see, let's have a little maths test. Seven plus eight plus 11 plus 13 equals 39. Fantastic. 39. Very significant. Well done, everybody. They are awake. Mike, it's amazing. Um, 39 was very important because it was exactly the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew words from Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one. So the idea was each time a wearer took it off, they were reminded that they belonged to God. And despite all the noise and the bustle and the excitement of that jostling crowd, when she touched his tassels, it halted him in his tracks. I think that's beautiful. For a moment, she became someone to whom Jesus gave the whole of himself. She was all that mattered. Our world, our world isn't like that. We are apt to divide people into those who are more important and those who are less important. Perhaps you can recall George Orwell's quote from Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal, more equal than others. Yet you see, for Jesus, no one is ever lost in a crowd, especially in their hour of need. Well, also in that crowd was a prominent Jewish leader, Jairus. Can you just imagine what it must have been like for him at that point, in that crowd, an important, respected member of the community, synagogue leader, for a man of his status and standing to fall at the feet of a wandering preacher with no official authority. What a humiliation. And then to lead, lead this same oddball holy man through the crowd, only to be stopped short by this woman whose condition wasn't even life-threatening, while his own daughter's life was ebbing away. On top of this, as everyone can, round can see, Jesus is now clearly defiled. I mean, how was Jairus going to face his congregation again? And to make matters worse, when they finally got home, it was all too late. The morning was in full swing. She's dead, they told him. For Jairus, all that humiliation in front of the crowd was in vain. There was no reason to trouble Jesus any further. As well as being stories about miracles that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, these stories also speak into the realities of our own lives. 
into our own anguish, into our own fears. At times when perhaps we too, like Jairus, feel that the world is falling apart. Quite late in his life, C.S. Lewis met and married Joy, Joy Davidman. Tragically, they were only married for three years before her death from cancer. And after she died, Lewis wrote a book in which he grappled with questions of grief and faith. He said this, when you are happy, you have no sense of needing him. It's tempting to feel his claims upon you are, well, an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what you find, a door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. I wonder if that resonates with you. It certainly does with me. When things look really bleak, I have to swallow my pride. I grasp at the one last wild straw. I beg on my knees for God's help. And often, just before I'm about to collapse completely, I hear a voice saying to me, don't be afraid, just believe. It sounds like a sort of divine admonishment. If you just believe hard enough, have enough faith, it'll all come right for you. And in Jairus' case, it did. His daughter was saved. God's kingdom broke through right there and then into that little bedroom, and all the angels sang, Amen. But while it came right for Jairus, it doesn't always happen like that for us all of the time. And one of the meanest tricks the devil can play is when he gets us to beat ourselves up with anxiety and fear, blame ourselves for our lack of faith, try harder, pray more often, impress God with the power of your belief, then we can claim the miracle as our reward. You might even call it idolatry. A pitiful effort to work things around so that we seem to be in charge of our lives, of our own fate, instead of owning up to the, the fact that every single breath we take is a free surprise from God. To concentrate on our own strength, on our own strength of belief, is, it could be said, to practice magic. To concentrate on the strength of God is to practice faith because it's God, not our faith, that works miracles. It's God, not our faith, that works miracles. Did Jairus' daughter have faith? I don't think so. She was on her way out in this world. Did Jairus have faith? Well, Mark never says he did. Was his daughter just in a deep coma? Even if she was, Jesus still rescued her from being buried alive that evening. Either way, Jairus just led that unclean, holy man back to his house and watched, stood and watched him while he did his work. But the high point of what Mark's telling us in this story wasn't then. 
It wasn't when Jesus calmly exercised his power of divine diagnosis. You see, the high point was much, much earlier when Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. Because if Jairus did that, conquered his fear, then his belief on its own would become the true miracle. His willingness to believe that she was still in God's hands, even though she'd slipped out of his, so that even if Jesus had walked into that room and instead had closed her eyes with his fingertips and pulled the sheet over her head, Jairus would still have survived the experience. It might, I think it might help us to remember that Jesus too prayed for a miracle on the night before he died. He prayed for you to his Father in heaven, for you all things are possible. Take this cup from me. Only what happened when he opened his eyes? The cup was still there. Did he lack faith? Or was the true miracle that he drank the cup, believing in the power of God more than he believed in his own power? Yet not what I will, but what you will. So just to finish, miracles are living proof that God's will for us is not for chaos, but for wholeness. They tell us how God's kingdom can break through into the here and the now. So, should we stop praying for miracles? We, we, we certainly shouldn't because this world needs all the miracles it can get. But it's worth remembering that every time you hear of one, that's a little glimpse into the kingdom to come. Miracles still happen in each of our lives. The poor woman with the hemorrhaging, despite her unclean status, despite her despair, despite her very real social anxiety of being seen in public, despite all this, she found the courage, the resolve, to put her fears on one side. Then she believed. That was her miracle. Then she reached out to Jesus with faith, not fear, at her fingertips. And it was the same for Jairus when Jesus said, don't be afraid, only believe. That was the point when he found, too, faith at his fingertips, when his belief also became his miracle, when he opened his hands to release his earthly fears and in re received instead the miracle, the miracle that is the peace of the living God. When, as 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, godliness with contentment becomes the greater gain. And it can be our miracle too. That same Jesus Christ who has said to each one of us, to you and to me, come out of the darkness and walk in my light. I'll die in your place so you can be set free for eternity. That self-same Jesus says to each one of us, don't be afraid, only believe. Then our faith will give us peace, whatever he decides to do. Don't be afraid. Only believe. That's our job. The rest is up to God. Amen.